Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Blue Mountain Village Voices. Welcome to Blue Mountain Village Voices podcast. Joining us is Michelle Harris, Director of Economic and Community Development for the Municipality of Grey Highlands, which includes communities like Eugenia Falls, Kimberly, Markdale, Flesherton, and the Beaver Valley. Before joining us in the South Georgian Bay region, Michelle served as Chief Executive Officer of Headwaters Tourism, an award-winning destination marketing organization that redefined and supported some of Ontario's most loved small-town destinations, including Orangeville, Caledon, Erin, Dufferin County, Shelburne, and Mono. Under her leadership, Headwater Tourism was named Tourism Innovator of the Year in 2016 by the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario and by the Tourism Industry Association of Canada. That same year, Headwaters Tourism was one of three finalists for a national tourism marketing campaign that year, up against two provinces, Ontario and Newfoundland and Labrador. Michelle is a community builder and tourism industry heavyweight. We talk about championing small businesses, economic growth in the municipality of Grey Highlands, including what's happening at the former Talisman Resort, and we discuss our region's new pioneers. Hello, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us. I am delighted to be with you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to have you join us on the Blue Mountain Village Voices podcast. I've been excited for this interview all week. Michelle, you are an icon in our industry, particularly as it relates to destination development and tourism. I was so excited when you joined us in the region. And I know we have so much to learn from you. So I'd like to jump right in and ask you a few questions. I'd be delighted, but I'm going to tell first, I don't like the word icon. It's a hard thing to live up to. But I will say one thing, Andrew, like you, I have a passion for this industry. And I think that's probably what we have in common. Absolutely. And just, you know, I define icons as individuals who really deliver and you really deliver, Michelle. So I'm going to keep singing your praises. I wonder if you could start by just telling us uh, what brought you and your family to the South Georgian Bay region. We moved from Toronto to a little town of Erin many years ago when my kids were young. And as suburbia crept up, I had my husband and I had been coming up this way for day trips, going up to Blue Mountain. And I just fell in love with the area. And we decided when we found the right place that we were coming here. And I will tell you that the draw of the Beaver Valley, which I live in, and then the proximity to Southern Georgian Bay and all it offers, there really is nothing that can beat this. I just, we are in love with this place. I think it's one of the most spectacular places in Ontario. And I feel honored and privileged not just to live here now, but actually to work here and maybe give something back to the place I now call home. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I agree with you 100%. The Beaver Valley is a magical place. We're so glad that you're contributing and working with us in the community. You've built quite an impressive career in the tourism and economic development sectors. How did you get your start on this path? My background is actually in in media. I Throughout my career, I started with the CBC. I did a fair bit of work in television and radio production. Also did a fair bit of work in public relations with the CBC. And as I think women often do it, my career morphed as my life changed. I, my husband and I had our children. We moved out of Toronto and much of the work I was doing with CBC needed to be in Toronto. And I didn't want to do that. So I started to apply my sort of my marketing and communication skills into the area in which I was living at the time, the town of Erin. And I don't know out of necessity or where I just started to gravitate. I started working with a lot of 
small and medium-sized businesses, most of whom ended up being in sort of the hospitality and tourism sector. And I found there was a real opportunity to help them maximize their resources for greater impact and contribute not just to their business and helping them succeed, but I really very quickly started to realize how their businesses impacted community. And and that was really, I kind of fell into it and just fell in love with it. And there's something about working with small businesses and entrepreneurs that is really engaging, isn't it? And I have that business background, but it inspires my creativity. They inspire me. I, I just, we can talk a little bit more at some point, but what they do and their connection to community really helps create a fabric, sorry, especially in small town Ontario. And I thought if I can find a way to support that and help businesses like that, at the end of the day, those people become your friends and your neighbors and so it's kind of like a throwback. It's what communities should do. And I, I just loved every minute of it. Yeah, I'm sure. It's interesting. I've had a few conversations on the podcast with entrepreneurs and small business owner operators. And there's this common theme that they have shared with me in that they see their businesses as an extension of their homes and their families. And they look at their visitors or customers as guests in their home. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about what it's like to work with a, an entrepreneur because there's just something in that that planning, that expectation, that experience that they provide that you can't replicate in a larger, bigger context. So that is so true. If it were easy, I mean, <laughs> if you're looking for the easy path, this wouldn't be it. So there has to be so much more to these people and these business owners than simply looking for an easy route to make a few bucks because that's not how this goes. That's right. It's a labor of love from beginning to end. I'm curious about your time with the CBC. Was there a, a content area that you focused on or was it pretty broad? So it's really interesting. I worked there through actually through all my university years as well. So I used to say that for somebody who was very new to the industry, I probably worked in more departments than people who had been there for for years because I moved around every summer. I worked in different departments. I actually will tell you how ancient I am. I actually worked on the launch of the journal oh. and it started with Barbara Frum. But I have to tell you, my passion was working in radio and I loved and I think it's very interesting in retrospect, I think that connection with radio and storytelling and relationship marketing became a foundational piece in the work I did when I owned my own small marketing agency. And then I, when I went to work for a destination marketing organization, how to connect people together. And that was my passion in at the CBC. I just think there is nothing in this country that provides more bang for the buck than CBC radio. And I think you're right. I think that that connection to community and the way in which radio can engage you. And I think what it also does, it's a very localized medium as well. And so you can connect with your community in that way. I think a lot of people are real and there's a real place for new media and digital, but I think radio has remained and endured as a marketing tool and a communications tool because it has those, those authenticity points that keep people engaged. So we're sitting here doing a podcast now. I would argue that this is just a, a different distribution channel for the same kind of content creation that was done in radio years and years ago. And I think in many ways, this is the new radio. And it's an opportunity to have conversations and share those conversations with an audience. Absolutely. It's exactly, I think, why that podcast trend is so big and people are engaging with it so much. I love it. I spend probably most of my time consuming media, listening to a variety of podcasts from politics to tourism, to culture, to news. I just recently did a huge paint job on my deck at home and painting spindles is among my least favorite things to do. But because I was listening to all of my podcasts throughout, it just kind of went by. So that was, that was good. Exactly. Okay. Thank you for that. That's really helpful. And I think that fusion in your background as it relates to small business, as it relates to media, 
I have a feeling we're going to touch on that in some of our other topics. Before we dive into the present, I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit about your accomplishments at Headwaters Tourism. You were the chief executive officer of Headwaters Tourism for a very long time, a very prolific destination marketing and management organization. I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about that experience. Headwaters was made up destination marketing organization because it crossed municipal and government boundaries, included 10 municipalities. We actually brought in King Township. So at some points for some of our work, it was 11 different municipalities. When it was started as a fledgling organization long before my time, it was started because a bunch of artists came together through some pennies on the table, I suspect, and said, visitors don't know municipal boundaries, but we believe collectively we have a similar experience. And they probably didn't use those words. It's how we would describe it in the tourism business. But we know people are coming up here to experience something similar, and we need to collaborate. And that was the start of the organization way before my time. When I came into it, it ran as a not-for-profit. It was like, it's like a lot of small organizations. It was struggling to keep the lights on. And I was brought in for six months, which turned into eight and a half (laughs) years, to look at the model and say, how could we do things differently? The geography of the area was over 2,500 square kilometers. We had over 1,100 tourism businesses in the area. And we had a tiny, tiny budget, like ridiculously You would be shocked at how tiny it was. And how did we bring people together to collectively support one another and promote what we thought was one of the most spectacular areas in the province and some exceptional experiences? I think what we learned over time and, and the first three to four years that I was there was spent in the trenches trying to understand, trying to bring partners to the table, trying to make sure we had done a lot of our market research. So we understood not only what our product was, but what our visitors were looking for so that we could build experiences that consumer wanted. And obviously that supports the businesses in the area. Where we started to have success and we launched a new brand in 2015, it coincided with the launch uh, with the Pan Am Games coming to Ontario. And it was headwaters where Ontario gets real. And I think what we really tried to portray, because we knew like a lot of areas in Ontario, we had arts, we had culture, we had local food, we had rural experiences. But what we believed, and it goes back to the start of our conversation, Andrew, is that we had Most of our businesses were owner-operated. Our visitors would tell us that they loved when they walked into a restaurant, that they had an opportunity to meet the chef, or they could walk into a shop and they would meet the shopkeeper. And we called it the cheers factor. And it wasn't contrived. There was this authenticity about it. We thought authentic was a little bit overused. So um, where Ontario gets real was our brand. And we believed what separated that area was the people and their connection to place. And if we could find a way to showcase those people into the market, that was going to help support our businesses and drive visitation. It resonated into the market in such a meaningful way There were some things that we anticipated would happen, but there were a lot of unintended consequences as well. But I think what you and I know, Andrew, working in this business that we do, we don't actually do anything. We just have the ability to bring people together and facilitate. And we used to say we were the biggest matchmakers. We'd meet a new business and they were looking for somebody to add an experience. Oh, well, we know a guy, we'd say, or let us hook you up with so-and-so. And we just had the privilege and the honor of wrapping it all up together and creating compelling stories that we broadcast into the market. And every year that campaign, weren't here, it the face of the 
campaign that year would launch on our visitor's guide and nobody would know who it was until it really was. And we'd launch it and people, visitors would come up with the magazine in hand and they'd walk into the shop and they'd go, oh my gosh, you are so-and-so. And what the best unintended consequence of that, what I try to bring into my work, I think this can be replicated in a lot of communities, is that each one of those business owners and tourism experience deliverers, this ended up becoming theirs. We didn't do it. They became our biggest brand ambassadors. We always used to say we sucked them into our broader delusion and they became our champions. And all we did was tell their story. And it was so ridiculously powerful. And it focused our efforts on what our product was. And our product in Headwaters was our people and their connection to place. It's amazing. And I think you, one of the things that I think is so brilliant about that approach is that you also celebrated them. You honored their work and contributions. And I think for a lot of small businesses, and it, this is an example of low-hanging fruit. A lot of small businesses just don't get that recognition. They're often taken for granted or they're just so busy doing their work, they don't even think of those things. But to be centered out and to be featured and to be honored in that way, what a way to get community engagement. I mean, it's, it really is something special. And that, correct me if I'm... It was powerful. And I think the other thing, and you know, I think it would be remiss if I didn't say we were so respectful of them. And that was so important. Every year, it just became an intrinsic philosophy of what we did and what the region and everybody did. We would host launch for the campaign each year and everything was local and everything that was on the table that was served showcased local and showcased the purveyor or the provider of that service. And that respect was, I think, really important. We hear it all the time. Oh, just ask them to do it. They'll do it for free because we're promoting them. And we didn't have much money, but we felt it was really important to pay people for what they did for us. And so if they were bringing a food item to the launch of our campaign, we didn't have a lot, but we'd say to them, can we pay you cost? But We understand. And I think that mutual respect was so important because at the end of the day, these are small businesses. We need them to thrive. So I think that garnered a lot of credibility for the work we were doing as well. For sure. And everyone has a bit of skin in the game as well and an incentive to work together and collaborate. I think that's another great, great part of that strategy. Tell me on the flip side, 1,100 tourism operators in a a destination that is quite spread out. Obviously, you would have experienced conflict points or differences of opinion or different expectations. In that context, how did you manage that? How did you overcome that? And I ask with purpose because I think it's something we're all grappling with today. And do you have any tips for us from your lessons learned at Headwaters? So it's interesting. We also had 11 municipalities. Our primary funding came from those municipalities. So there was always the balance of, okay, how how are we representing each community? Are they getting their fair share of what they're contributing? Like it was, we had spreadsheets. We had multiple spreadsheets that would be built on year over year. But I think how we ended up managing it, we we developed a program called Leading with the Best. And it's not about the program, but it was more about the philosophy. We recognized that the 1,100 businesses all had a place in tourism, and we had an opportunity or an obligation to represent them in some fashion. So all of those businesses, free of charge, could have a listing on our website and the standard basic thing. But what we did over the years is we would engage and work at product development and market readiness for all of those businesses. So like all of us, we would do training workshops. We'd work with our RTO. We'd work with municipalities to help elevate the tourism product. And what we did is this leading with the best program was saying, we will only 
actively and seriously promote in our campaigns, et cetera, those businesses that we believe are market ready. And we had a checklist of what that was. And you had to, you know, you had to be able, you had to have email. And I know that sounds silly, but at that time, the businesses had to have as part of their market readiness, at bare minimum, they had to have an email. They had to have a website. They had to have signage indicating their place of business. So when a visitor arrived, we had a a checklist of what those things were. And once you got to that stage, we deemed you market ready. And then we would, we had a program where you could put some skin in the game, very low price point of entry. I think the minimum was $150. But when you committed back with some money and we, you had passed the market ready test, then you became part of those experiences and those products that we actively promoted. Selfishly, it helped us manage priorities. But when people put some money into the game, we also knew we would get the response from them. We would get what we needed if we need an an image, et cetera. But perhaps most importantly, we knew that if we promoted them, that there was a standard that the consumer would receive when they arrived in our area. And you have very fair and transparent criteria for everyone. So that really helps. And it wasn't like if if you didn't meet the criteria, it wasn't like, no, we don't want you. Let us help you get there. We have these workshops. We have training. This is how we do it. So we were working to elevate all businesses to that level. But when they got to that level, then businesses could make a conscious choice through a small financial contribution to say, yes, we really want to start looking at the tourism market now specifically. Exactly. It's a great model. We've applied a similar model, both within the Blue Mountain Village environments, but also one of our signature products and programs, the Apple Pie Trail. So all of our partners, we developed that kind of market readiness criteria together. So that was really fun to sort of have all of our partners around a table and say, well, we think that this is the level of parking access you need to have to be market ready. This is the level of web or social media that you need to have in order to to be able to serve and engage. And it really helped us to get that focus and I think be more successful in the long run. Very interesting. When, when you talk about 11 municipalities, that's a bit of a reality check for me because I know when we talk in the South Georgia Bay region, depending how you define that, I mean, you're five, six, somewhere under 10 municipalities, but I think you're comments are that we are not unique here. Many regions have the multi-municipality, upper tier, lower tier. So we can learn from some of our neighbors on, on how to overcome some of those challenges. There's a universality that I'm starting to tap into. I find comforting and in and of itself can help us build more capacity. So let's fast forward now. And, th- and thanks for sharing that. And congrats on all the great work there. I know that there were many awards that you and your colleagues received, lots of recognition for the contribution. And I think because you kept your community at the center of it, that no doubt that's why all those accolades came in. So congrats, truthfully. Thank and you. I, I can tell you from our industry colleagues across Canada, that recognition and the awareness of what you were able to achieve there is very respected and looked highly upon. So thank you. So let's fast forward to today and your role today. Before we get to sort of what you do, I was wondering, for those who might not be aware, if you could sort of describe a little bit about the municipality of Grey Highlands, sort of where it is, what it comprises of. So Grey Highlands is in the southeast corner of Grey County, where I say we're kind of equidistant at the bottom of a triangle, about 30 minutes from Owen Sound and 30 minutes from Collingwood Mayford, depending where you are in the municipality. It is, and clearly I I like to quote geographical numbers, it is an 882 square kilometer municipality, mostly rural. We have two what we would call settlement areas, which are Flesherton and Markdale. And then we are dotted with villages and hamlets across the area. Centered in the middle of this geography is a world biosphere, Niagara Escarpment, gem, which is the Beaver Valley. And that is sort of our anchor in the middle of this municipality. I always say when I came here, it has, when we do some of our work, we talk about it, that we had pioneers from the 1800s who must have settled here. And it was probably 
because of this spectacular geography, it was probably hard going. And it's fascinating today, you know, we're respecting where we came from, but we're kind of seeing a new generation of pioneers who are coming back to the land, new kinds of farming and entrepreneurs and it's a great place to be, especially right now. It really is beautiful. I, I live in the municipality of Meaford. And so if, if I am heading toward the city, I am uh, driving through uh, Flesherton or taking the Beaver Valley. And I often in Markdale as well, just because I consider those communities to be part of my broader community. And there are just such treasures, whether it's a, an urban flavored cafe or whether it is those rural trails and outdoor experiences. It really is quite something special. The role that you have, I think, is really exciting. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about it. Your role, you're responsible for both economic development and community development. And I would imagine, I'll I'll tell you my assumption and then tell me if I'm correct. My assumption is that is with a lot of purpose where the municipality wanted to have a portfolio and an initiative that looked at economic development alongside community growth and residents. Is, is that a fair statement? It probably is. And in fact, though, I will tell you, so when I started with the municipality, it'll be three years this Already? August. Municipality, yeah, time <laughs> flies. The municipality didn't even do economic development. They did not have an economic, any economic development staff. I think what had happened, it was just sort of what was happening was happening. The, in my mind, Economic and community development are two sides of the same coin. What we ultimately do with both of those portfolios is you want to help create a place where people want to live, where people want to work, where you build a strong, viable, and sustainable community. And both of those elements, economic and community feed into that. So I think it is very intentional. It is very beneficial. And it recognizes that none of this work could or should be done in silos or in isolation. They have to come together. And it's fascinating since we've sort of incorporated this. And because we are a small municipality, Parks and Rec also falls under this portfolio, as does our local museum. But the convergence of our collective work is becoming so apparent now. And I think it's a pretty powerful equation when you look at it through that lens. Absolutely. When you use that lens, it's transformative and has the potential to be transformative. And I think that, and why I'm so impressed with what's happening in, in the municipality of Grey Highlands is I, th- I think, you know, once again, Michelle, you're, you're part of a charting new territories and trends in this focus because in so many different locations and communities that siloing remains and it is really hard to change that mindset and i think that's where economic developers businesses associations dmos we really need to challenge ourselves to think differently has that been a a challenging process for your colleagues or has that been something that has come naturally I would say I have been blessed. So I came in, I was the only person in the department when I started just under three years ago. There was no department. Um, The museum curator who was with us had started a couple months before me. I inherited him. Robert is brilliant. He's dynamic. He is young. He is innovative. So lucky me that he was a kindred spirit. We then hired a community and economic development officer, Krista, And we just, I guess, between her and our Parks and Rec team, we share a philosophy. I always say we're kindred spirits. And how lucky are we that we get to work in a community? We believe in community as being the foundation of our work. We believe in conversations with community. I will tell you, has it been easy? Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Like, let's not get ourselves. This is a new approach. This is a a historically entrenched community. Gray Highlands was an amalgamation of other municipalities from 2001. So there are still historical entrenchments of communities. But I think working with the community and the community groups, and I applaud council because 
Krista, who's our economic and community development officer, we've shifted her work. And I would say 70% of her work is to be that community conduit. So she works with all our community groups. And I think that is evidence of council's commitment to and recognition of the importance of community and volunteerism. And so we're getting there and there has to be trust and that you don't earn trust because you walk into a room and say, trust me, we have to build that trust. And, you know, we have to change some thinking and we have to look at doing things differently sometimes, but respecting where we came from, because you can't just come in and pretend like there's value. This community has been around for a long time. It is people who have built this from. So we're working through that. And I think, I think because we're all coming at this with pure intentions, and I know that sounds a little bit corny, but we are. And do we mess up? Absolutely. Do we not know about things that are long entrenched. Yeah, sometimes we stumble into things, but we listen and we try to hear and we try to work with community to help build a shared vision for what we want to be for the next 25, 50, 100 years. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I think that is, that's admirable. It's critically important. If you're not making mistakes, or if you're not learning, if you're not going through challenging conversations, I would argue that you're not really innovating or relevant. So that is always for me a bit of a yardstick. If I know that there's more conversations to be had, and there's controversy or differing points of view, it usually tells me that you're hitting terrain that matters. And so you kind of have to lean into that. And I think it's clear you're doing that and that the municipality is doing it successfully because you're making some national headlines for some of the work that you're doing. And I think, and it's really good. So to me, I see that as, you know, proof is in the pudding. There's a couple of really big development opportunities and moves that the municipality is making that has piqued the interest of communities really across the country. And I'm wondering, are are you okay if we just sort of cover a few of them just to... Absolutely. Let me start with the first one. Right now in the municipality, there's a bit of a, not a bit, there's a comprehensive planning exercise taking place that relates to the former Talisman Ski Golf Resort site. And there are some really great ideas coming forward and really engaged community groups and business groups who I think are helping the municipality determine what the vision and and future will be. Morning, if you could talk a little bit about that. I'd love to. So I'm going to actually step back a little bit and say, yes, we're working on the former Talisman Resort property, and I'd like to chat specifically about that. But we're trying to, and I think it goes with our overall philosophy around, you know, how we're holistically building out the municipality and trying to establish a community-driven vision for what we want to be in the future. The former Talisman Resort is in the village of Kimberley in the heart of the Beaver Valley. It is iconic. It is central. But we, the, the visioning sessions that council has begun doing right now for the Beaver Valley, we're actually calling them the Beaver Valley Corridor Visioning Session, Beaver Valley Corridor Visioning Sessions. And we're looking at that whole geography within the municipality that starts at Hogs Falls in the south and goes to north of Epping, because we don't believe that we can look at one parcel without understanding the implications 
on the broader corridor there. And the geography is very clear. You look at a map and you can see what's going on. And Andrew, when we first started talking, you were talking about pressures around Old Baldy and we're having some over-tourism and challenges with infrastructure and parking related to tourism and what does this look like. So I think it's really a good thing to look at this broad corridor. We're working with Gray County and the RTO and we're going to be doing an outdoor adventure tourism strategy and action plan this year that is going to focus on that corridor because that's that's where we're seeing those pressures, but also seeing some tremendous and interesting opportunities. So we've invited community over the past, in the month of May, we had over 450 people take part in these visioning sessions. We had six different sessions done by Zoom. And I I actually think that may have allowed more participation than less. But what the talisman piece specifically, and I would like to speak to that, the municipality is, I would say, in a bit of an enviable position because a lot of municipalities don't own land. The municipality owns two parcels of land downtown Markdale, which is our sort of urban hub. They are vacant or relatively vacant right now. So that will give us an opportunity to have community and council help shape where we want to go. It's an enviable position. We are in a similar position with the former Talisman Resort. The lands that, you know, if you skied at Talisman in the late 1960s or 70s, the entire parcel included the top lands, which is just under 60 acres, the ski hill and the lodge, and the former golf course. Through a variety of sort of land swaps and issues with tax sales, etc., the municipality owns the top 59 acres and the former golf course, which is just under 75 acres. So we own the bread of the sandwich, and the private sector owns the former lodge and ski hills, which is, I would call, the meat in the sandwich. The community um, has been putting a lot of pressure on the municipality to want some answers as to what is happening with those former talisman lands, because it was a huge economic driver, and not only an economic driver, but a hub for the community for many, many years. And since it went into bankruptcy, it's been a gap in the community and it's been sitting, those buildings are sitting there and they're not in the best shape anymore and they haven't been able to move forward. So when the municipality did our 2019 to 2023 strategic plan, one of the economic development priorities was to spearhead development opportunities for those municipally owned lands, both in Markdale and the Beaver Valley. And over the past year and a half, we've been having conversations with the private sector owners to say, what if we take these properties together? Let's work together to see what kind of interest there might be out in the marketplace to do something. Because it became very clear that individually, the part parcels of land, nothing was happening with them. So is there an opportunity to work together? And I think, you know, many of us in this business know that if if there's an opportunity to develop some kind of public-private partnership, it oftentimes provides tremendous results back to a community. So we've been exploring that. We entered into a joint venture with the private sector owners in March for a period of one year to market and solicit opportunities related to those properties. The visioning sessions, obviously, there was a lot of public input on what people wanted to see there, what they would like to see happen. Over the most recent weeks, we've had a couple of delegations to special meetings of council, one that came about with a consortium or a group of community groups coming together, talking about how they wanted to be intimately involved in this process and would like to be part of the process and they've got some ideas. And then we had a private sector development company come forward last Friday, I believe it was, to sort of say, we also have an interest in there. And I think, you know, ultimately what council's going to have to decide is what the future of those properties look like to support not only the economic viability of the community, because I think obviously I'm in economic development and I think that's a big part of it. But what are we going to do 
council has been very clear that anything that has to be done there in the future needs to respect and honor the environmental and ecological integrity of the valley. I will tell you that 80% of those lands are protected under Niagara Scarpman or the Conservation Authority. So there's those restrictions in and of themselves apply. But we also want to make sure that whatever's done there helps support a community legacy and doesn't become a private. The last thing I think anybody wants is for somebody to buy those lands and land bank them and build their own private castle on there because then those lands become lost to the community. And we all know what a treasure that is. You can't recreate those. So, I mean, there's some big discussions going on, but there's the Mary Poppins, which is my nickname, the Mary Poppins in me says, this is a tremendous opportunity to shape a future that's built around community discussions and help us create something really special. Yeah. And I think back to the the very nature of your role, I mean, in order to achieve economic prosperity, you do need to have the community benefiting and contributing and everyone wins as a result. I think what's really interesting about the approach that the municipality is taking, and I think you're able to do this because of the land holdings you have, but rather than decide on what the specifics will be, you've just decided that you will champion the site. And you're going forward and and asking people to bring their ideas to you to help you make the best decision. And I think that's leadership. That should deliver the right outcomes in the end. So that's great. I hope so. And I think what has been overwhelming in this, it was so apparent, not just from our residents and businesses, but from people from far and wide, the passion and the the commitment and the the value people are placing on these lands is just so obviously apparent. And we know we have to honor that. Like there's just no way we could not honor that. And it's been really heartening to see that passion coming forward. That's right. I mean, we have applied a similar philosophy here and we understand very, very clearly that our community sees Blue Mountain Village as their Blue Mountain Village. And so when the local community comes to visit or spend a day here, they have ownership of it. They have pride in it and they want to see it the best it can be. And so sometimes that means that there's critical feedback. There's a lot of frustration when things change. And I've understood for a long time that that is coming from a place of caring so much about what has been built over generations. And I think it's important to remember that you're at the beginning of that on the, the talisman site and the, that broader corridor. But I think it's always important to remember that people who are coming forward care today, they're going to care tomorrow. And whatever the outcome is and whatever is done, it's going to be their community and they're going to have expectations and they're going to want to engage. So I think it's something we should always pay attention to. It can be very easy to forget. And it's an important reminder. And so I'm, I was particularly taken by some of the proposals around the natural elements and kind of the the eco-focus. Is that something that is gaining a fair bit of traction? Yes. I would argue that even in the conversations we've had with traditional developers who have contacted us interested in this thing, this area, this opportunity, that anything that has, anyone that's been expressing any kind of interest, whether it was from the grassroots community groups to capital firms who are looking at this opportunity, the ecological footprint of this place, the preservation of the trails and all of those assets, everybody who has expressed any kind of interest seems to be looking at it from that perspective and from a health and wellness perspective. And I think they have to be one because this will not be an easy property to develop. I'm just going to tell you, no matter what happens, with 80% of the lands under various jurisdictions or undevelopable, they're not easy lands. So if somebody was looking for easy to build a 20-foot tower of hotel rooms, they would not come here. There's better places that they can do. The reason they're coming here, I believe, whether it's community, people who have moved here and now call this place home, 
is because they value this spectacular geography and this natural footprint. And so everything, and and there's some debate because there's some people who are less interested in having any kind of development happen there. But everybody I talk to has expressed that maintaining and valuing and honoring the lands is critical. It's a great starting point because if you have alignment on that, take things a far way for sure. Thank you. Thanks for providing us the, the background. And I think it is important to highlight that there is this broader consultation that's happening and you're not just looking at one single site, even though it's an important one. And I think that is, that's tough to do concurrently. Kudos to the, the municipality for, for doing that because it is what needs to happen. I want to ask you about another another policy piece that you're working on that is, I think, equally innovative and, and bringing a lot of foresight to the, the fore. And that is around regulations on short-term rentals and sort of those Airbnb, VRBO, vacation rentals. I know there's a, there's a, a plan in place there to better manage that activity. I wondering if you could share for us a little bit about what the impetus was and, and where you are. So short-term accommodations, as we know, I would call them market disruptors. They're not these kinds of properties now. They've been around a while now, but they're not entrenched in a community. When I first started with the municipality, one of the first things that landed on my desk was a whole stack of complaints from neighbors who were frustrated around short-term accommodations happening on their road next door, et cetera, et cetera. And as if you've been to Gray Highlands or if you know about it, we do not have traditional or many traditional roofed accommodators. We have a motel. We have some traditional bed and breakfasts, but that's it. And by nature of our geography, we are a tourism destination. But as you know, Andrew, when people stay for extended length of time and want to be able to stay, they contribute bet more to our economy. So we have a gap in the market. So in our minds, not only do short-term accommodation fill a market gap right now, but they also provide a different type of experience than a traditional route accommodation that fits. But we were also hearing from residents who were frustrated with the party houses, who felt that these the parade of people coming in and out over at various weekends were changing the character of their neighborhoods. So we needed to do something and we weren't sure what that was going to be. And we started to research sort of best practices globally, but particularly in North America. It became very apparent. So we went to council and we said, you know, there's three things that we think we could look at as a way to deal with this. The first one is just do nothing, bury our head in the sand and ignore it. Number two is you can deal with it through zoning. Or the third way you can deal with it is through a licensing program. And council said, we think the licensing program is the way we want to go. So we started to explore it. We used the Town of Blue Mountains model as a starting point for some of our sort of base model for what this might look like. We held public meetings. We have just under 50 properties licensed now. We continue to monitor them. But I think the benefit of this has been that it has created a dialogue. It's sort of taken them out of the shadows in the community and brought them to the fore. So residents who may have some concerns now know how to come forward to the municipality and knows that know there's a process in place to deal with any concerns they have. But I will tell you, 99% of the operators we're dealing with are fabulous. Do you get the odd one who continues to operate party houses and is a bit of the outlier? Absolutely. We believe that this system has provided us with some real incredible benefits. So first of all, the operators who are now required to be licensed, some of whom were dubious about this at the outset, most of them are quite, quite pleased with it because they believe part of the process is they have to go through a life and health safety inspection so that for the visitors on the other end, they know that there's at least been a 
some standard of due diligence on behalf of the operator and the municipality to ensure that there are fire alarms, et cetera, in place. So that's good. I think it has created an inventory for us. It it just makes it a little more official. But as you know, one of the gaps, this was an underground economy. We as a municipality and as an economic developer didn't have a clue what these properties were contributing to our municipality, what kind of economic impact they were having, how many visitors they were getting. And we are now able to have start developing and acquiring some data so that we can understand how these properties fit into our larger tourism management strategy. For sure. The data is critically important. And it helps in so many different decisions, whether that's how you market the infrastructure needed, traffic, transportation. It's, yeah, it's really important. It's critical. And it's interesting for us because our municipality does not have a destination management plan. It's part of what we are now building, but all of these pieces come into play here. And this is another example of convergence. We're dealing with significant increases in tourism, especially since COVID. We are looking at opportunities in the Beaver Valley. We have this market disruptor in regards to accommodation. So how do we all work collaboratively and bring all these pieces together so that we are helping to build a strong and resilient tourism economy. But at the end of the day, we have to build something that is respectful of the people who call this place home. Of course, home. as always is the case. Yeah, it, it has to be at the, at the forefront. You provide a really good example of all communities are different. And something that might be very challenging in a market like, let's say, Toronto and the sort of impact of condominiums being converted to hotels through sharing economy and the impact is very different from a community like Grey Highlands where there is no accommodation and it can actually play a great role if managed properly. So I think it's, a, it's an aha moment for many of us is that any one thing or strategy isn't good or bad. It's all about the context and how it's managed. Right? And I think, Andrew, the other thing that we... You know, we see it in a lot of our work. I listened very intently through some of these Beaver Valley corridor visioning sessions. And there were people, and and you know, in this tourism business, there are people, local residents everywhere around the world who don't like tourists. They don't want them here. Part of our work is to juggle that. I've said it before. I'll say it again. By nature of our geography, Gray Highlands and the Beaver Valley specifically is a tourism destination. If we don't figure out how to manage this so we develop a tourism product and destination that is respectful of the value of communities, we are going to be overridden and we won't be able to get a handle on it. I would argue the same thing with short-term accommodators. They are not going away. We could choose to bury our head in the sand about it and they will just do whatever they want to do. Or we can find a way to work with that sector and say, how do we collaboratively work together to support you and to support the needs of the community? And to put honest effort into making it work and addressing the problems. Yeah, I agree with you. Since COVID-19 disrupted tourism on every level, disrupted every aspect of life on every level, definitely seen that phenomenon of more domestic travel. And I think our region last year experienced a lot of it. And as a result of that, we're definitely seeing some trends and innovation around softer tourism. And I'm wondering if if you have any thoughts in our region of what what do you think that is going to look like going forward? What steps do you think businesses in the region need to take to buffer the impact or better integrate? It's interesting. And we all know everybody's been dealing with the same issues and pressures. I don't always, we've seen the negative impacts of COVID on over-tourism businesses, businesses being put out of business, people losing their careers, et cetera. We've also seen some incredible resiliency. And 
certainly in Grey Highlands, and I would say across the entire region here, I am seeing, and I'm going to say particularly young, and I don't want, and I can, I'm old, so I will not take offense to my own comments, but I am seeing people who are young and looking to live a life differently. And I am seeing this emergence of these innovative creators who are those new pioneers that I spoke of earlier who want to find a way to build a business, a life, and a community that all intersect. And I think tourism is a very big piece of that. And there's been some tremendous success stories. What I am seeing and is where a lot of the opportunities are coming are related to those outdoor experiences, those less packaged, even though they can be packaged, but the perception of less packaged, I think there's going to be a trend to customization. I suspect there will be all kinds of new and innovative partnerships formed between businesses. So not everybody is going to be able to do this or deliver a fulsome tourism experience on their own because of some of the restrictions we're finding around physical distancing. I also think it's going to take a while for consumer confidence to rebuild, but I am seeing, and I I really believe this region is so well positioned because of the outdoor spaces and experiences that we have. So I think our biggest challenge is going to be how we support our businesses and how we manage the traffic flow is probably too broad a sense, but I think you know we're, we're seeing over tourism in some areas. So how do we build out a cohesive approach to this so that we are all benefiting in this new norm? And it's an overused term and I hate using it and I just did, so I apologize. But I think there is, we're going to think differently, uh, but this connection to land and people and authenticity and intimacy in the experience, I think is where it's going to be a challenge for, and I have some really good friends who are in the event business. So traditional models of massive events, I think are going to take a long time to recover, not just from a physical point of view, but from a consumer readiness point of view. But on the other hand, the opportunity to really find those connections and build something. And I think from an economic point of view, consumers are are willing to pay for it. That's right. Yeah. So these new, more more customized, partnership-driven, unique experiences may come at a higher investment level, but will be higher valued. Yeah. That's I think that is a that is a concept that I think a lot of destinations are thinking about is how to how to continue growth with less. I'm going to jump on a soapbox for a minute. It is an interviewer. It's you know not always the best, but here we are. This is really a conversation. I believe that gone are the days where we'll see economic development reports created by municipalities that say we need to diversify our economy and tourism is puts us at risk. I think we are similar to agriculture in that what people often forget is that we are highly connected sectors, highly collaborative sectors, and we work together to support each other. And look at us through this pandemic. Tourism, yeah, there are some pluses and minuses depending on your sector, but generally we are doing very well and and maintaining levels of employment, maintaining growth and adapting and and are, are finding investments agricultural sector i mean the, the 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 way in which that community collaborates on marketing on distribution i mean we are powerhouses in economy and i i think that our experience through this pandemic should put to rest some of those questions that we often see pop up in the templated economic development plans so there i'm off my soapbox now but i so agree with you because i would also argue that sometimes by labeling our businesses tourism I think we are painted with that fluff, like, oh, yeah, whatever. And at the end of the day, especially if you look at how tourism experiences are being built, and 
authentic experience and taste of place, that happens across the entire spectrum of a community. So you talked about agriculture, we talked about recreation, we talked about all of those. We have a quilt shop. I'm looking at how do we get that local quilt shop connected because I think there's a whole opportunity for granny tourism in Grey Highlands. People want to learn to come to can, to quilt, to sew. We get to experience those things that make a community special and they feed into what we call a tourism funnel, but they are deeply embedded in the ethos of a community. Well, I, I can tell you, thinking about Flesherton, there is a glass blowing shop that uh, does lessons. And I started to watch that glass blowing show on Netflix during this pandemic. And I was obsessed with it. It was so fun. I, I can't wait to go. And I can't wait. As soon as we're able to, I'm booking my appointment. And those are the kinds of, I think, experiences, whether it is, you know, culture, taste, flavor, you can really sink your teeth into. So think about COVID, what people were doing. You couldn't get bread. You couldn't get yeast. People were doing all of things that sort of took us back. When I talk about granny tourism, come, wouldn't you love to come to a spectacular place in the middle of the Beaver Valley where you get to go up and hike in the, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you come back to a spectacular breakfast in the middle there. And then later in the afternoon, you learn to bake bread and then you go forage with Sean Adler and you go to eat at the chestnut. And maybe the next day you learn to can with some of those things that in a community hall because you forage those the day before. I believe and I think COVID has really exponentially highlighted the value on those things that perhaps we've overlooked. Yeah, in the past. I think you're right. There's another trend that I think we may be putting too much of an emphasis on COVID. I think COVID is really, you know, magnified. I have a theory and I want to get your your take on it. And it sort of relates to this this exploration of rural life and this exploration of small businesses. And I wonder if part of the compelling drive for people to come and visit communities like Headwaters, uh, Grey Highlands, Blue Mountain, Thornbury, Collingwood, has something to do with the changing nature of our cities and the sort of changing nature of small business in large city centers. I wonder if you think there's a correlation there. I most certainly do. I think I've always believed this and I see it more. And obviously, COVID has probably raised it to people need connection. I don't want to dismiss the importance of our large urban centers as cultural hubs and what they bring in the important. I grew up in Toronto, so I, I, I don't want to dismiss that. But I was down there not long before COVID and I was leaving the city, driving out on a Friday afternoon. I had this visual image of all these little people. I saw them running out of these corporate office towers and scurrying. And, you know, they were scurrying underground to get on the subway or the GO train, to scurry out to suburbia, to come back the next day if it wasn't a Friday, to come back on Monday, scurry in. And there's a sterility about it. And I'm not saying it's everywhere. I think I'm probably doing disservice to neighborhoods. I think neighborhoods have huge value. But I think the large, impersonal urban centers, if they don't find that essence of connection, I think they're going to be in trouble. And I think naturally, that's what we have in our small town, Ontario. And I think that there's such a hunger for that. And, you know, the trick now is how do you balance that when there's this huge out-migration from urban centers? How do you protect that integrity and have that balance? It's a full circle conversation. And I think it explains why the work that the municipality of Grey Highlands is doing is so important because those trend lines are there and that macro influence is there. So yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting and interesting times. And I just, I always find it fascinating to, fascinating to look at how cultures change and then how that translates into business opportunities, economic development. Before we wrap up, and thank you again for this great conversation, I want to I ask you one final question. This has been a very tourism and, and community-driven conversation. I'm wondering if, if there are, I know 
Gray Highlands has a, a mix of other sectors, including manufacturing and other and other opportunities. I'm wondering, are there any other priorities that are fundamental right now that people should be aware of? There are two largest private sector employers. One is Chapman's Ice Cream. I mean, we are the ice cream capital of Canada, I would argue. Um, that's a huge partner in our community. The other one is Ice River Springs, who, yes, they're a water company, but they are also one of the leading innovators in environmental sustainability and recycling and all of that kind of stuff. We wrote a COVID business recovery plan here. And what we are seeing is a significant emergence of what I would call niche micro businesses. So especially in the farming and agricultural industry, we're seeing it from young growers, the side road farms, the harvest moon, all of that. These young pioneers who it's so fascinating to watch, you know, sumac and salt, how they've all come together and created their own niche. And I think there's an opportunity for us to honor and I think a responsibility to support the emergence of those niche micro businesses. The other one that we have here, and I think, you know, we're starting to work with the community, the community at large related to this, but we've all seen the growth in the Mennonite community in Grey Highlands, and I would say across this area of Southern Ontario. And those families who run those businesses are a critical part of not only our agricultural story, but they are working in some highly specialized manufacturing that we need to be looking at. And I think we are starting to develop those relationships with that community, obviously being respectful of their own tradition, but how do we support them, not just through zoning and all of this, but what do they need to help? Because some of the work they are doing in laser things, right? And machining, highly specialized, highly sought after. But what is interesting about the Mennonite community particularly is they are still intrinsically tied to land. So you look at our geography, our geography is land and we come from an agricultural base. So everything that I'm sort of seeing emerging is really tying back to that place. And I sound like a broken record, but that's why I think all of the work we do has to honor those traditions of land farming heritage. Michelle, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I feel like I've just taken a, a master class in community engagement and development. I can't wait for us to be able to share a glass of made in the Beaver Valley wine or cider in the near future and catch up. I look forward to it. I've loved this conversation. We're kindred spirits and we have great passion around the work we do. So it was truly an honor having a conversation with you today, Andrew. And I can't wait till we can hug and see each other in person again. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Blue Mountain Village Voices, a production of the Blue Mountain Village Association. For more, go to bluemountainvillage.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.